Welcome back to Safe Talk with Safe Start. I'm Tim Page Bodorf, and today we're joined by the most senior of Safe Start's consulting uh, team, my dear friend, Mr. Gary Higby. Gary, welcome back to the podcast. Well, Tim, it's my pleasure to be here with you and the uh, Safe Talk audience. Thanks for the invitation. You bet, anytime. And for those that's not aware of Gary's extraordinary career, I'll just kind of scan over the highlights for the sake of time. Gary has been at this for more than 55 years. I mean, an engineer by trade, he's pretty much seen it all. He started out on the line as a factory worker and kind of worked his way to the corner office as CEO. In 2010, the National Safety Council awarded him with the Distinguished Service to Safety Award. He's the co-author of Inside Out, Rethinking Traditional Safety Management Paradigms, which he wrote with Larry Wilson. And Gary's authored almost 100 articles (laughs) His most recent is kind of why I asked him here today, and more on that in just a second. But first, I wanted to point out he has mentored many, including me, on our team. He's also one of our coaches. And so, Gary, did I get everything, or did I? is there something I missed? (laughs) Well, buddy, I think you did really, really well. Uh, Let me say it's all gone really fast. I'll have to say in my 50 years of being alive, my experiences, the older you are, the faster it goes by. Well, I I would suggest you hang on a little bit, buddy, because you are about ready to enter hyperspeed. (laughs) That's kind of what I'm afraid of. Um, Well, we should make the most of our time today anyway, so let's uh, get to your latest article. And it caught my eye. Um, By the way, I put a, a link to that full article in the show notes for anybody that wants to download it. And the reason why I grabbed my attention is because as a safety professional who talks to a lot of other safety folks, your article actually addresses a question I believe all of us have that we've had at least one time or another along the way. And a lot of our folks in safety, they actually feel like they're going at it like alone. So what do you think in terms of support from executives? Are they going at it alone? Well, I think it's more of a perception. I've been on both sides of that fence, by the way. But it is the question I probably get asked more than any other. Now, what most of us, at least safety professionals, don't do well is provide our executives the data that they need. Sometimes we don't even realize that we're not doing it. And they need that data to make safety-related decisions, particularly those for capital. And that this impacts our performance. And, you know, we... we do not nearly do uh, uh, we do not do nearly as well as we should with safety, and I know some people have trouble with that statement, and you're not along alone. So let's look at some data. We'll concentrate on worker deaths, but you should note that more minor injuries have similar data, and the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics published a news release in December 2020. So that's before COVID data that released what I think numbers that, and data that should concern us all. The number of fatal worker injuries between 2010 and 2019 has been on a steady increase of, of actual deaths. Now, it didn't go up every year and down every year, but if you drew a line from 2010 to 2019, there's a steady increase in deaths. So what do the numbers tell us? Besides the obvious lack of improvement, They tell us that despite of all the advances we have made, the results stay basically the same or they've deteriorated a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
So as a production engineer, I designed systems thinking that the actual work was done by consistently going from point A to point B efficiently. Mm -hmm. I assumed that the pattern was consistent and had very little, if any, variability. And what I found out was that all systems have constantly changing variables, sometimes by the minute. What we thought was simple becomes way overly complex in the moment. Yeah, you know what, Gary, if I could, just for a second, um, I'd like for our listeners to visualize what you actually just said. You, as an engineer, designed work from A to B, now essentially a straight line. And what you found is that, in reality, work is more like waves or the roller coaster. So that requires workers to make adjustments in order to keep working flowing, uh, keep work flowing. So did I get that right? Yeah, you nailed it. And if we're making all this effort and the results are not improving, doing more of the same isn't going to reduce serious injuries and fatalities. And it's not going to do very much to reduce the lesser injuries either. So my, my hypothesis is that the current safety performance of organizations may not improve until we help executives, senior leadership, develop safety-related knowledge and skills that translate into higher levels of support, which everybody wants, and much better decision-making. So let's just get right into it, and let's start looking at current safety management systems. And then we'll compare those systems to executive and senior management leadership skills, and then we'll determine what we may be able to do to help senior leadership drive better safety performance. And at the same time, they'll be driving better performance and productivity and quality as well. So the primary duty of safety management um, is to assure regulatory compliance and keep the management team out of trouble. Now, not everybody's going to like what I just said. So this is a harsh reality, but the evidence is all around us. And if leadership is unenlightened, this is what they want. <laughs> I, as I was reading the article, you actually shared an example in the article. So do me a favor. Could you share that here and now for our listeners? Oh, uh, OK, sure. Uh, during my career, one of my jobs was safety manager in a large manufacturing organization with several factories. My factory manager once told me, I do not want to be the best or the worst. I just want our safety, our safety performance near the top, say third or fourth among the factories. That way we get less attention. I could not have been more disappointed and visions of resigning kind of ran through my head for sure. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, well, this is one example, and it may not be representative of all organizations. Sometimes you get fake support, but it's an issue, and it's not a rarity. Why would he say that? He had little knowledge about general safety issues, didn't understand safety requirements, limited data to guide him in his decision-making, and overall a lack of knowledge about human performance issues, and it led to his discomfort in the topic. They don't teach people in business school or engineering school anything about safety. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the best managers, though. I, I'd never had one that was better when it came to productivity, quality, systems, and performance in general. He simply did not know anything about safety, so he wanted me to keep him out of trouble. 
which I did. However, we weren't going to get any better if I didn't help him. So I helped him over time to understand the need to know more and do more in the safety arena. And once he understood more about safety and how it impacted productivity as well as quality, he started to become more interested and certainly more confident. <laughs> I always think of one of those classes in college, too. They don't teach two managers as soft skills 101. So <laughs> I'm sure you probably had to work on those soft <laughs> skills as well. All right. Anyway, what you just said is an important distinction. And um, just because you may be knowledgeable about something, that doesn't mean you're confident in what you know. And in, in other words, confidence and knowledge, they're a hard combination to beat. So how, yeah. do we get, how do we get leadership knowledgeable and confident when it comes to safety? Well, the key for us is going to be to move beyond the opportunities and safety management to actual results. And it's going to be leadership. We're going to have to get them involved. Not just safety leadership, but a comprehensive approach to business that treats all factors of success equally. Also, let's take a look at what safety management can provide to assure leadership is confident they have the skills and the data they need to drive safety performance. Yeah, you actually identified in this article three areas that may be the most helpful um, to help encourage leadership involvement and skill development and confidence in that safety discipline. And the data is, you know, we go back to it as data reliability, you know, risk assessment. Um, and you also mentioned human factors engineering. Let's uh, dive into that a little bit deeper. There's a big difference between productivity, quality, and safety data. Productivity data is instantaneous. It's perfectly visible. It's easily understood. And if you're scheduled to produce an automobile every two minutes, one should be coming off the line every two minutes. And if that production level is not being obtained, everybody instantly knows there's a problem. But it won't take you long to find the reason. If you just walk up the production line, the exact point on the line that is slowing down the productivity is visible. Quite often, it doesn't even have a car in it, and we can fix it, and then you're back to normal right away. Mm -hmm. I was thinking productivity data is immediate and you know and accurate, so leadership can actually rely on it and can quickly make effective decisions. And quality, though, may not be so apparent. What do you think? Well, it's it's not visible instantaneously, but it doesn't take long to show up. Mm -hmm. So let's uh, let's use an example of that automobile assembly line. Mm -hmm. The issue may show up as early as the next stage in the production line, uh, like a dent in a car hood. It could be noticed right away or it could get to the dealer and then have to be repaired there. And it could even get to a customer, possibly, and then have to go back to the dealer for repair. So even though the discovery is not always immediate, it can be, it can be helpful if we can uncover it quick enough to avoid hundreds of cars arriving at the dealer with identical dents in the hood. And I had one that had a dent. I swear, not there when I bought the car, but it was there then. But this issue is potentially more costly, and man, it does mess with your productivity schedules, causes delays. So leadership can use the data to put in systems and at least put something in place that'll be an early warning. And then they can get the data accurate and timely, like a statistical process control system. 
So while it's not instant, it's still available pretty soon. And management can make good decisions and limit the damage. Yeah, I was thinking, um, well, productivity and quality data are, are almost immediately or almost immediately available. The only time um, instant reliable data is available for safety is when you have an injury or, or a near miss and you have to react. I, I think from a reactivity perspective, it's just <laughs> that's the data we get. So what well, do you it's think certainly reliable at, yeah. at that point in time. In the safety world, we're trying to avoid having incidents. So we don't want those incidents. And that requires us to rely on the ability to recognize risk, mediation of that risk, and prediction of when that risk is going to come about. So the process is not as effective, but it beats waiting around for an incident. So leading indicators can help, but I want to caution people. That only works if the data is accurate. If the leading indicators are wrong, the organization spends time and money working on something that's not an issue or not very valuable. But what's worse, we're not only working on things that are not as valuable, we're not working on things that we should be working on. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it's going to take time to realize that the data is not reliable. And believe me, when leadership uses bad data to determine its course of action, they make bad decisions. Sometimes unbelievably bad decisions. I've made some of those. Mm. So for safety issues, we need to be able to perform accurate risk assessments. And in addition to the normal severity and likelihood approach of most risk assessment systems we've been using for years anyway, we need to add a third dimension to the risk assessment. And that's human factors. So adding human factors isn't easy, but you'll recognize risk with an accuracy you never have before. Human factors, this is a caution, human factors do not change the severity rating. It changes the likelihood rating. So to help leaders guide safety, we have to provide them reliable data, and it's gotta be promptly, not a report every month or every quarter of, lead, of lagging indicators. Leadership needs leading indicators you can get some of those from a behavioral-based observation process. Understand, you still have to have accurate data from that. Frequent risk assessments help, and hazard ratings help. So safety data is not something they necessarily want to hear. <laughs> In fact, often they don't want to hear it at all. But it has to become something they genuinely want, genuinely want to hear. And consistently and constantly providing safety data we get the leadership in the habit of relying on the data and using it to encourage proactive safety activities, not just reactive safety activities. I want to back you up just for a second. Um, productivity and quality decisions, are kind, they're kind of easier for leadership because of data. But safety, what do you think? Well, um, productivity, capital dis decisions. So what, what are we going to spend money on? increasing our productivity are really simple. If you consider how much each increase of capital investment gains the organization and productivity, like if I buy a new machine, I can make 400 more widgets than I could make before. Then the decision is based on whether they need that much of an increase in productivity. Can they use the extra productivity or are there other constraints in the system 
making extra productivity of very little value? And also, can the market support that additional productivity? The data can be trusted, though, and it lessens decision risk. That means you can trust the data that you get and you can make good decisions. I've been talking about decision risk since the 1960s, and I hate to say that. That date me, dates me. But you have to be able to trust the data if you're a manager. And you don't want to make decisions that you are not confident in. So then what happens is the money doesn't go to a safety where I don't have the all the stuff that I need, all the data I need, but I have data for productivity, no risk in that decision, and I have data for quality, no risk in that decision, I'm not going to waste my money. But with safety, it's a little bit harder. So productivity, decision risk is low, quality capital decisions. Now they have a few more issues. Uh, the main thing is if the product you're producing does not meet the customer's expectations, you're not going to be in business very long. So of course that's going to take a priority for capital. Now, will a customer pay for quality beyond their expectations? That's a legitimate question. In other words, it was good enough before. Will I pay more for something that's better? And again, the data can be trusted, though, so we have limited decision risk. I was just thinking that uh, we've kind of already determined that safety is really not that forward, like you just mentioned with quality and productivity. So I, I think our listeners could use another uh, example here. What do you think? Oh, um, okay. Years ago, uh, my organization produced a product that required frequent lifts, and they were between 35 and 45 pounds. And the lifts were awkward. I didn't like the looks of that. Neither did my team. So we did a risk assessment using a state-of-the-art, at least at that time, system, and the risk rating was extremely high. You probably knew that before I even said it. 35 to 45 pounds in awkward position is not good. We presented the data to the operations manager, and, and we proposed changes to help take some of that risk out of it. We even included some data for productivity and quality gains, thinking that would make it a slam dunk. And his first and last question was, how many people have been hurt doing this job? And the answer was none. Yet the risk was extremely high. So, so the bad news is that we did not do that project until after four people were injured and two of them actually required surgery. So the issue is not how smart the decision maker is. The issue is what type of leader they are and whether the risk data is considered reliable enough to act on it. We have a problem with that in safety. Mm -hmm. Risk data is often considered soft data. And in this case, no one had been injured yet so the data was essentially ignored. It was soft data. Hard data will always trump soft data. So without enlightened leadership, the capital will almost always go to quality or productivity-based projects. These decisions damage the entire safety effort, and without strong leadership, nothing changes. So the solution has to be to include leadership in risk evaluation process. Now, you're not going to get them out there on the floor doing risk assessments very long. But getting them involved and share the way data is collected and evaluated, most leaders like to have data. 
but they want to be sure the data is reliable. Remember that decision risk I mentioned. Mm -hmm. So participating in one risk assessment, that activity will likely convince them that the process is valid and the data can be relied on. You know, I was thinking from a foreshadowing storytelling perspective, I've read the article and I know this story, it, it certainly has um, a happy ending. <laughs> well, it does. You know, he finally got it. In, in fact, he, he more than got it. And risk assessment became a tool to lower risk of many different jobs. He was aggressive at it. He wanted, actually wanted at least one risk assessment a week. And then even productivity and quality risk was included in it because they're affected by human factors too. And we were using human factors in our assessments. So risk assessments were so valuable that we started performing them on new product lines that were in the development stage. In other words, what could we anticipate would be a risk as we go into it? We hadn't even started producing it, it yet. So it's up to us to help the leadership trust the data and then to use it effectively. That's pretty powerful, Gary. I'm going to say, just backing up a little bit, you actually mentioned human factors engineering. You want to expand on that? Well, uh, Human factors are a variable lost in common risk assessment, formal or informal. They don't look at human factors. They look at the amount of hazardous energy and the likelihood. But human factors are critical. We can't understand what's going on if we can't communicate effectively between all levels of the organization what human factors are and how they work. So um, remember when I mentioned my time as a production engineer? Mm -hmm. I designed systems thinking the pattern of work was consistent and had very little, if any, variability. And if I meant, I think I mentioned it before, what I found out was all systems have constantly changing variables, sometimes by the minute. So what we thought of as simple becomes overly complex in the moment, and issues like parts not fitting together, requiring extra force to get them in place, a machine not working efficiently, consistently anyway, causing parts to be out of specification, or even employees not feeling well, being frustrated or overly fatigued, those all cause performance variables. Now, the good news is that our workforce knows this and does a great job of producing a quality product very quickly. But you have to ask the question, do they do it safely? Risk assessments are not accurate in a variable environment. So in our effort to drive safety performance through the system, if that does not include human factors, we're going to continue to be frustrated by the variable of our results. Yeah, so for our listeners, when you say human factors, you're actually talking about at least the four states from the Safe Start journey. Uh, right, and, and there's more, but senior management and leadership must understand basic human factors. They knew, need to know that the way they manage can cause human performance issues. So 12-hour shifts, six days a week, can easily change acceptable risk into unacceptable risk, seriously altering the likelihood of an event just because of fatigue or including human factors with severity potential and the likelihood in risk assessment will get them thinking particularly about how human factors alter the likelihood. 
Human factors don't alter the amount of hazardous energy. They alter the likelihood. And then everyone knows going faster than normal. We've all done that. Being frustrated, maybe angry, overly fatigued, or being overconfident, we'll call it complacency, can cause us to make errors. These are just the states people move into and out of on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. So the hard part is only the employees know what state they're in, and it's changing rapidly. Human factors and their impact on performance can be difficult to manage, but until we at least have a basic idea or understanding of human factors, we can't make a positive difference in the injury data. Uh, Gary, that's extremely enlightening. I have to suggest to our listeners, um, we have a risk assessment multiplier in module number two of SafeLead. And if you're not familiar with SafeLead or SafeFactor, um, we actually venture down this road of incorporating human factors. So give your account executive a call and they can give you a pretty good idea of what that module looks like. But SafeLead was developed for, as you put it, Gary, leadership. And so I want to thank you. I can't thank you enough for taking some time to work with us today, Gary. I really do appreciate it. Well, Tim, thank you. And it's really a, a nice opportunity. It's a treat for me to catch up with you, my friend. Oh, it's yeah, I do appreciate that, too. Everybody, Gary is a walking search engine. I mean, Google should have named themselves Gary. And when it comes to safety, you can actually ask Gary pretty much any question. So if you'd like to reach out to him, you can do so at Gary at safestart.com. I've also put a link in the session notes, and that'll take you to his executive buy-in article and <clears throat> any many others that he's done. Um, and then also how to purchase his book, which I believe is the Safe Start Bible. And you'll find those in the show notes as well. As always, feel free to share this podcast. And uh, on behalf of all the team here at Safe Talk with Safe Start, Thank you for sharing some time with us and we'll see you down the road.